Uh, I invite you, if you would, take your copy of God's Word or open it on your phone or tablet uh, to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah is, again, in the uh, section of the minor prophets, as we call them, in the Old Testament. Not minor because they're less important, but minor because they're shorter in length. Uh, Jonah comes about, I don't know, three-fifths of the way or so through my Bible. If you are using uh, one of the Bibles that's under uh, the seat in front of you, the little black hardcover Bibles, you'll find Jonah beginning on uh, page 783 of that Bible. Today, we'll be in Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Last summer, uh, June of 2021, a man by the name of Michael Packard, who lives and works out of uh, Cape Cod in the uh, northeastern part of the United States, he's a lobster diver by trade. He gets his scuba gear on, jumps off a boat, swims down, grabs lobsters, sells them at a market, makes his living that way. Last June, Michael Packard, the lobster diver, was swallowed by a humpback whale. He was down. That's a true story. He was down diving for lobsters when all of a sudden he felt this just huge sort of collision from behind and everything went dark, totally black. And he thought for a moment, perhaps he'd been bitten or swallowed or something by a great white shark. There are some in that area from time to time. But after a while, he realized he wasn't hurt in any way. He, he, he didn't seem, nothing seemed to be broken or messed up or whatever. And, and, uh, and, and he didn't feel any teeth and he realized, I'm inside a whale. And so Michael began with all of his scuba gear on, thrashing about to get out of the whale. And uh, uh, over the course of about 30 or 40 seconds, he, he assumes the, the whale became rather discontented with having Michael in its mouth and swam very quickly to the surface of the water and spit Michael Packard out of his mouth. Uh, there were some friends of his that were on other charter boats nearby who said they saw Michael coming out of the water with his legs just flailing in the air uh, as the whale spit him out, and he landed. His friends uh, went over to where he was. They uh, got him out, got him into the boat, and he said, his first word, first words out of his mouth were, oh my God, I survived. And then he told his friend, I was in a whale's mouth. There are a lot of things that I could imagine coming out of a person's mouth after being swallowed by a whale. I think that I personally, had I been swallowed by a whale, would have said more than just, more of just, more than just exclaimed uh, that I survived and where I had been. I think that I would have been rather grateful to have survived the ordeal. And I'm not saying Michael wasn't, but the first words out of his mouth are quite interesting. Not necessarily words of gratitude, although I'm sure he was grateful, but words of, of just exclamation that he survived. Last week, we ended Jonah chapter 1 with verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And what comes in chapter 2 are Jonah's words to God from inside the belly of that sea creature. And Jonah does not merely exclaim, oh my goodness, I'm alive inside this fish, but rather Jonah responds in the belly of the fish to God's merciful deliverance with a song of thanksgiving. The words that we express in times of crisis matter. There is in Jonah gladness in the God who saves. The main idea that comes to us from Jonah chapter 2 that we want to key in on this morning is this, that God provides salvation that leads to gladness for the rebel who asks in humility and faith. God provides salvation 
that leads to gladness, gratitude to God for the rebel who asks in humility and faith. As rebels like Jonah, some of us redeemed already by faith in Christ, some of us may be still running from the Lord. Let us find ourselves today glad, thankful, joyously worshipful in God's merciful deliverance, not just from bellies of fish, but from the sin which so endangers our soul. Let's stand together as we honor God by reading his word. We're going to begin in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, because it just fits with the rest of this chapter, all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. In God's word, we read, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he heard me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will, pay, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's word. You may be seated. God gives salvation that leads to gladness, to thankfulness for the rebel who asks for salvation in humility and faith. As Jonah, we saw last week, running from God, rebelling from God, God said to Jonah, Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it because their sin has stunk to high heaven. And Jonah immediately gets up and goes the opposite direction. He doesn't get up and go to Nineveh. He gets up and then goes down to Joppa, down to uh, a ship, down into the hull of a ship to go to Tarshish in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He goes down to sleep in the ship and in the middle of the storm that God hurls upon the ship to get Jonah's attention. Uh, Jonah is awakened by the sailors on the boat. They take him up and they say, what shall we do since all of this is your fault? And Jonah says, throw me overboard. And they say, we'd rather not. And he says, no, really. They say, if you insist. And Jonah goes down again, down into the ocean, down or down into the sea, down into a belly of uh, a fish. And even here in his song, we read, down to the bottom, down to the depths, down to the roots of the mountains, down into the land whose bars closed over me forever, down even to the land of Sheol, the land of the dead. Jonah's whole trajectory of his life after God calls him the first time is down, 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 down to this point of absolute desperation where he cries out with thankfulness to a God that he knows will save. In Jonah's prayer to God from the belly of the fish, we see gladness, we see gratitude for God's salvation in a number of different ways. And first of all, we see that there is gladness in God who pursues the rebel. There is gladness, gratitude, thankfulness for God who pursues people who rebel against him, who run the opposite direction. 
As we come to Jonah chapter 2, we need to remember how Jonah got to this place in the fish. And we uh, did that as we just reviewed the narrative of Jonah up to this point. Jonah flees away from the call of the Lord. God hurls a storm at him. He directs the lots that the sailors throw to, de- to show that Jonah is the cause of their travails. The sailors throw him into the sea, and a fish comes and swallows him. Each step Along the way to this point, even uh, in the belly of the fish, all of this has been God's doing. It's all been God's work in pursuing Jonah. Even chapter 2, in the middle of his prayer, chapter 2, verse 3, Jonah says, you cast me into the deep, your ways and your billows passed over me. Everything happening to Jonah is from the Lord's hand. God is not punishing Jonah so much as he is pursuing Jonah, seeking to get Jonah's attention. We said last week that if God has willed for you to do something, he is going to make it happen, whether you want to or not. God has willed for Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah's not going to get off the hook of it. All through, even Jonah uh, chapter 1 and early part of Jonah chapter 2, God is chasing after his prophet. He is pursuing his prophet. Now, we can look at Jonah chapter 1, the storm and everything that comes uh, along with it, the casting of Jonah into the sea, the swallowing of the fish, and we can look at this as a discipline of the Lord on Jonah, and I don't think that's a wrong way to look at it. Now, there are two kinds of discipline that take place, from parents to children, from bosses to their employees, from governments to their citizens. There's formative discipline and there's punitive discipline. Formative discipline is the stuff that we teach our children, instructions that we give them, laws that are set before us before we've ever broken them. Formative discipline teaches us the right thing to do. It helps us to walk in the right way. And then there's punitive discipline. Punitive discipline is punishing someone for when they have broken uh, the, the, the outlines, the boundaries of their formative discipline. So how is God disciplining Jonah? Is it formative or is it punitive? I think it's both. As God sends a storm and sends this fish to swallow Jonah, I think God is on the one hand teaching Jonah about who he is. He is, even as Jonah confessed, the Lord, God who made heaven and earth, who is over the seas and everything in them. That God is who he is, whether Jonah likes it or not. God is reminding Jonah of what Jonah already knows about him. He's teaching him about his own character again. And he's also disciplining Jonah in a sort of punitive sense because God called Jonah, his prophet, to go somewhere. And Jonah said, no, I'd rather not. Thank you very much. God is pursuing Jonah, teaching him about his own character and also correcting Jonah's bad behavior. Now, this is not a new thing that God does in pursuing those who rebel against him, is it? Those of us who know the storyline of the Bible know of numerous places where God pursues the rebel. He goes after the person who has rejected him. It's, it's as early as Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, right after the first man and first woman, Adam and Eve, our, our first parents, after they eat from the tree that God had forbidden them to eat from, they go and try to hide from the Lord, which of course they cannot do. But God, we read in Genesis chapter 3 verse 9, God called to the man in the garden to Adam and said, where are you? Adam sins. He disobeys God's only command. Don't eat from this tree. He tries to hide. And what does God do? Forget about him, write him off, move on. No, he pursues him. And there is the man is with his wife, Eve, the woman. God says to the woman, what is this that you have done? Interestingly enough, uh, Ken Stephan, one of our Bible study leaders, 
reminded me this week as we were talking about Jonah chapter 1, that this phrase, what is this that you have done that God says to Eve in the garden, is the exact same thing that the pagan sailors say to Jonah in Jonah chapter 1 when they find out who he's running from. What is this that you have done? How can you hide from this God? And, and I don't think that, and, and the, the phrase is exactly the same, both in Hebrew and in English. I don't think that's by accident. I think Jonah is, either if he's recalling the story or if another of the prophets is telling the story um, uh, about Jonah to us today, is trying to say Jonah was running from the Lord in the same way that Adam and Eve were running from the Lord. And God pursued Jonah the same way that he pursued the man and the woman in their sin. Countless times throughout the course of the Old Testament, we read about the Lord, the God of Israel, pursuing the people of Israel when they rebel against him. Jonah is, in many ways, a picture of this. He's a picture of the northern kingdom of Israel. We know that after Solomon, King Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel was split in two. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and the northern kingdom of Israel had an, a long series of bad, wicked, pagan, idolatrous kings. And Jonah is a prophet to those people. In many ways, Jonah's own life reflects the trajectory or the patterns of false worship and rebelling against God that the northern kingdom of Israel had determined. And God is going after Jonah in the same way that he's going after his people. Psalm 78 verses 40 and 41 reminds us this about Israel's history, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and how often they grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again, provoked the Holy One of Israel. God, in response to the people's rebellion, not just in the northern kingdom of Israel, but even prior to that, he sends them helpers. He pursues them with deliverers. He sends them David. He sends them the prophets. Ultimately, God will send to his people a Messiah, a Christ, a deliverer. God pursues Adam and Eve in the garden. He pursues his people all throughout the Old Testament. God doesn't just pursue, though, the rebel among the people of Israel, friends. God pursues the rebel in every place. God goes after every sinner, similarly to how he goes after Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, God says to Jonah, Go to Nineveh. Nineveh is a city among the Assyrians people who were enemies to the, or a nation that were enemies to the people of Israel. Go to your enemies, God says to Jonah. Go to those people who have never worshiped me, who don't know me at all. As we'll see at the end of Jonah, those people who don't know their right hand from their left, go to them and preach to them. Tell them to turn from their ways. Nineveh, friends, is a picture of all of us who are not part of ethnic Israel. My guess is most of us in this room probably do not have a Jewish heritage. And yet God even pursues rebels like us, rebels from apart from his chosen uh, people in the Old Testament of Israel. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, Paul the apostle says this to a church in Rome who is, who is of mixed ethnicity, Jew and Gentile. He says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jew and Gentile, Christ died for us. 
while we were still running, hiding, fleeing from the presence of the Lord, like Adam and Eve did, like Jonah did in getting into the ship and running away, at the same time as we are running from God, he is pursuing us with all of his love and mercy and grace toward us, beckoning us, pleading with us, turn and receive forgiveness, turn and receive the blessing of salvation. And how is it that God pursues us? In human flesh, in the, son, in, in the person of his son, Jesus the Christ, who gives his life in our place when we deserved it the least. As John the Apostle writes a letter to the early church in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, he says this to those who will hear it. In this, the love of God is made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There is in Jonah's prayer gladness in the reality that God pursues rebels, that God pursues those who are running and trying to hide from him. Know this this morning, friends. God pursues rebels. He comes after those who have rejected him in order to make them holy in order to draw them to himself, in order to make them what they were designed by him to be. God in his sovereign power and control has brought Jonah to the very end of of himself at the end of Jonah chapter 1 and throughout Jonah chapter 2 so that Jonah can see and respond in faith to God's will. God's will for Jonah is for him to go to Nineveh and preach to them. Each of us, friends, we all rebel against God. All of us do. All of us have. The tension, the pain, the frustration of life can often feel like God is actively punishing us for something that we have done wrong. And sometimes he is, God is working through the natural and spiritual consequences of sin to reveal our sin to us. Often God allows the pain of sin to be painful. Why? So we'll know that sin is not good. And at the same time, he uses the pain of sin in his pursuit of our soul to see that if we continue to reject him and continue to walk in sin, to walk in rebellion against him, that it's neither healthy for our soul nor good for our lives. But greater still is that in Christ, God has stepped into our suffering because of sin to pursue us as God with us, inviting us to follow him, inviting us to trust him, inviting us to receive his death in our place, to glory in his resurrection, to be saved through him, Friends, God pursues rebels not so that we can keep living our life the way that we, the lives the way that we want to, but to make us holy, to live our lives the way that he has designed for us to, in fellowship, in relationship with him, pursuing holiness, being made right with him. I've recently begun uh, reading the Chronicles of Narnia, starting with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with our younger two daughters uh, uh, in the evenings. We don't read every night, but we, we try to get to it fairly regularly, and we've uh, been introduced already to the White Witch and, uh, and to uh, the character of Aslan, although he hasn't made it onto the scene yet. That's where we are. But as, we, as you read through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or maybe you've seen the movie, Aslan, this lion who is a, a picture of Christ uh, in C.S. Lewis's sort of imagina- imaginative world, Aslan is a stalking menace to the White Witch who uses her evil to prop herself up The white witch does not want Aslan to come. When he's on the scene, he is a threat to her very existence. And at the same time, the same Aslan who comes on the scene in the same posture, the same gait, the same 
character and manner is also a triumphant deliverer to every Narnian who suffers under the, under the white witch's winter but never Christmas. God pursues rebels like Aslan arrives in Narnia. How we recognize him and how we relate to him, though, makes all the difference. God is pursuing Jonah. God pursued Adam and Eve. God pursues Israel. God pursues Gentiles who are walking in their sin, but who he wants to deliver. Some of us respond to him like the Narnians do. We know that we are living where it is winter and never Christmas, and we are longing for deliverance. And so when our God arrives, when Jesus arrives and we see him for who he is, we receive him with gladness because we know he is our rescue. But some of us continue to walk in rebellion. Some of us love our evil too much. We love what it, has, what it has got for us. We love the pleasure of sin. And we respond to the coming of Aslan like that white witch who says, over my dead body, will you take over? Friends, God pursues rebels to make them holy. And how you recognize and respond to him makes all the difference. Will you receive Christ like those Narnians who are longing for Christmas or like the white witch who would rather it be cold forever? so that she can live according to her own ways. There is in Jonah a recognition that God comes to make him holy, to get him on track, to shape his life, to be what God wills, and he is glad that God pursues him in his rebellion. But there is also in Jonah's prayer a gladness, a gratitude, a thankfulness in the God who hears the rebel's prayer. God doesn't just pursue people who are far from them, far from him. He also listens when they cry out to him. We see this wonderful reality on full display in the content of Jonah's prayer. In chapter 2, verse 1, I called to the Lord, I called to Yahweh, and he answered me. Chapter 2, verse 4, I'm driven away, but I shall see your temple again. He says, verse 7, my prayer came to you even into your holy temple. Notice where where Jonah is when God hears his prayer. Jonah, chapter 2, verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the beach after it was all over. No, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, from one foot in the grave. This is Jonah's prayer. He says that he is in the belly of Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew understanding of the place of the dead. He says, I was in the deep. Weeds were wrapped about my head like human sushi at the roots of the mountains. In the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah is... For all, for all intents and purposes, as good as dead. And that's what all of these phrases say. I was as good as dead, and I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. And he heard me. And not just from any place, even from his holy temple. And his holy temple is probably not the temple in, in uh, Jerusalem, but probably uh, Jonah's con- conceptualization of God's holy heavenly temple, from the place where God resides most perfectly in all of his holiness, That's where he heard me from. Jonah is literally and spiritually in the place that he conceives is farthest from God's reach. There is in Jonah's mind almost an insurmountable or or impassable chasm between him and God at this moment in his life. He is at death's doorstep with one foot in the grave and even there the Lord hears him. Friends, don't miss this morning in Jonah's prayer, simple as it may seem, this wonderful reminder of the doctrine, the teaching of God's transcendence, that is his omnipresence. He is everywhere all the time. There is nothing in in his creation that can prevent him from being anywhere. 
He is unlimited in his access to his creation. There is nowhere that God is not, and there is no distance so great as to separate him from hearing the prayer of faith when offered to him in faith. Jonah's as good as dead, and God still hears him. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12 says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, like Jonah, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for darkness is as light to you. Understand this, the depths of the ocean cannot silence and cannot stop Jonah's faithful prayer from reaching the very throne of God in his heavenly temple. There is no place that God is not, and there is no distance that can stop him from hearing the prayer of faith. Dear friend, neither can you, even in your sin, even in your disobedience, even in your years, decades of running from God, neither can even that silence your prayer to him when you offer it to him in real humility and real faith. Because there is gladness in the God who hears the rebel's prayer because God is transcendent and there is no place that he is not because there is nothing that can stop him from hearing the prayer of the one who cries out in faith. And this morning, friends, I exhort you, rejoice. Rejoice in God's nearness to hear the rebel's prayer. Rejoice in his closeness to you. That no matter how far you may feel from God, how long you may have been running, there is nothing that can stop him from hearing your prayer if offered to him in humility and faith. In our family devotion this week, we were uh, sitting in the living room and read through Jonah chapter 2, and I like to ask the kids, you know, what stuck out to you? What do you, what do you learn about God or, uh, uh, or even about Jonah or about ourselves from, you know, what we're reading? And we were talking about all that Jonah had been through, his long rebellion or dramatic rebellion. It may not have been very long, but it certainly was dramatic and where it ended up and where Jonah is when he's crying out to God. And Olivia, our youngest, uh, I'm I'm sorry, um, uh, Ellie and Abigail, our two older daughters, both sort of at the same time said, we learned that from Jonah that it's never too late to call out to God. And that's absolutely true. Jonah's here almost dead as good as dead, and God still hears. It's never too late to call out to God. And Olivia, our youngest, with wisdom, I think that only God gives to children, says, or too early. (laughs) It's never too late to call out to God, and it's never too early. Friend, seriously, it is never too soon to ask God for help. It is never too soon to ask God for deliverance. Why wait forever? (laughs) Why wait till you have one foot in the grave? Why wait until you've lived your life to call out to God for help? Not a one of us is guaranteed tomorrow. We know that all of us, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. It's never too soon. It's never too soon to call out to God and say, help, save me. I am already at my first sin beyond the, the end of my rope. I'm in a place where there's, there's only, the, oh, salvation can only come from you, God. So friend, if you put off responding to God in faith, 
Know that it's never too late. You can be on your deathbed and reach out to God through faith in Christ and seek forgiveness and get it. The thief on the cross, as he's hanging there dying next to Jesus, said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, giving him that assurance of his salvation because of his faith. Ever before he was baptized or took the Lord's Supper or was a member of a church or a part of a Bible study or a grow group, It's never too late to cry out to God. But friend, don't be like the thief on the cross because you don't know if you'll even have the capacity to respond to God before your last moment. And one of us could walk out this door today, get hit by a bus, hit by a car, tragically lose your life in a snap without expecting it. It's never too late to cry out to God, but friend, it's also never too early. If you haven't known the redemption, the forgiveness, the reconciliation with God that comes through Jesus Christ and faith in him who died to pay for your sins and was raised again from the dead in glory, it's not too soon to cry out to him for help. Do it today. Do it today and be glad. Be glad and rejoice in the fact that God is near enough to hear that prayer today. Third, we see in Jonah's prayer from chapter two that there's gladness, there's gratitude in the God who saves the rebel. There's gladness in the God who pursues the rebel, gladness in the God who hears the rebel's prayer, and gladness in the God who saves that one who is running from him. This is the the grand point of Jonah's prayer, that God has saved him, and he is ecstatic. It's kind of funny because even by the end of his prayer, he's not even out of the fish yet, and yet he's already declared in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. He's thankful for salvation that hasn't even been physically realized for him yet, but it's coming. The whole purpose of Jonah's prayer, it's a a hymn of thanksgiving. If we're to look at its form and compare it to other hymns, the, the whole purpose of this prayer is to give thanks to God. Why? Because he saves. Verses eight and nine of Jonah's prayer, we read, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Here, Jonah recognizes the benefit of repenting of sin and turning to God. He says, those who don't repent, those who pay regard to vain idols, those who live in their idolatry and worship of self or other gods or other things that aren't God, Those who continue to live outside of God's intended relationship for them continue to live outside of God's steadfast love. They forfeit God's steadfast love. There's that wonderful Hebrew word that we see time and again throughout the Old Testament, that word chesed, which here is translated steadfast love in other places is translated covenant loyalty or loving kindness or mercy. It's a word that means kind of all of those things wrapped up in one. Those who forsake the Lord, those who worship themselves and gods that are not the Lord, forfeit God's covenant love to them. But the reverse of this is also true, that those who repent of their rebellion, those who put away their gods, those who depend on the Lord only, those who humble themselves before the Lord uh, God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them, the one who says to God, you are God and I am not, you give salvation, I can't earn it. Those who turn from sin and to the Lord are securely within his steadfast love. Those who reject God, forfeit it. Those who receive God in humility and faith are the benefactors. We're the recipients of God's covenant love, his steadfast loyalty, his mercy, his loving kindness. And this is precisely what leads Jonah to 
such gratitude for God's salvation, a realization of, of what God's love brings. It brings rescue. It brings redemption. When I receive it, when I say, this God is how you've loved me. You've shown me my sin. You've shown me there's no way for me to get out of it. You provide the way of deliverance. So I'm asking you, God, deliver me because you're the only one who can. He sees God's pursuit of him. He knows that God has heard his prayer and Jonah is saved by God's hand. Salvation belongs to the Lord and the Lord spoke to the fish and (laughs) vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah's experience, friends, is just one more reminder that God rescues all who cry out to him in faith. I'll say that one more time for the Christians in the room who know this reality. Jonah's experience is one more reminder that God rescues everyone who cries out to him in faith, in real dependence. It's interesting to note that Jonah, as an individual, is only mentioned in three sort of contexts in Scripture. The first reference we have to Jonah in our Bibles is in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, and we just get a passing reference. Jonah, the son of Amittai, from such and such a place, uh, carried out his ministry in the reign of Jeroboam. That's all we get about Jonah. Then we get Jonah's, this, this one experience, this one event sort of in Jonah's life in, in, uh, the, in the prophetic book that bears his name. But then there's one third place that Jonah is mentioned. Well, actually, it's like three places, but they're all parallel passages in the New Testament. Primarily, it comes to us in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. And you can find a similar, you can find a similar reference to Jonah in Luke chapter 11 and also in Matthew chapter 16. But in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, story of Jesus' life, in chapter 12, we find there the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, who were experts in the Old Testament law. And they were even experts in the interpretations of interpretations of God's Old Testament law. These Pharisees, these lawyers, come to Jesus and they demand that he do a sign, do some sort of miraculous work so that we can believe that you have come from God. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, the only sign that you'll receive is the sign of Jonah. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This prayer for rescue from Jonah in Jonah chapter 2, between Jonah's descent to the fish and even before his ascent to the land, his prayer may be also applied to Christ's death and resurrection. Surely his Christ's descent to death was not for his own sin. Jonah descends into the belly of the fish because of his rebellion. Jesus descends to the grave because of our rebellion. And in the same way that Jonah cried out for help and ascended back to life, so also Jesus is raised back to life after three days. His resurrection was by the power of God in the same way that Jonah's salvation was by the power of God. The only difference between Jonah and Jesus is the, the subject, the, the, the recipient of that salvation. Jonah goes down because of his rebellion, and he's saved from it by God's grace. Christ goes down because of our rebellion, and he's raised in glory, vindicated as king of kings, so that we might follow him in resurrection as we trust in him. There is gladness in the God who saves the rebel on Jonah's part. And for those of us who know Jesus, there ought to be great gladness in our hearts for knowing that Christ descended to the depths of death itself and was raised again, not because he deserved it, but because we did. 
that we are recipients of Christ's righteousness because he is the recipient of our sin. Friend, this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, see the readiness of God to save you through Christ. In the same way that God was ready to save Jonah from the belly of the fish when he cried out in faith for help, so also is God ready to save you from the depths of hell that your own sin has brought upon if you'll simply call on him in faith. And at the same time, worship God with thankfulness because of his gracious salvation. See God's readiness to save you. There is no one too far. There is no distance too great. And those of you who know this salvation, worship God with grateful hearts, singing aloud, salvation belongs to the Lord. You may sense this morning that you are far from being saved. I don't know where all of you are in the place of your heart in relation to God. You maybe feel that you have lost your gratitude for the salvation that you have once received. Maybe you've been walking with Christ for some time, but there's little joy in the salvation that you have. Friend, understand that God is glad and ready to save everyone who calls on him in faith. And he's happy to give gladness in the heart of the one that recognizes this and reminds himself of it again. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are in a place of deep spiritual desperation because of our rebellion against a holy God. And in Romans 5, 8, as we reviewed earlier, Paul says to us that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While all of us were dead in our sin, rebels against a holy God, God shows his love to us in Jesus who gives his life in our place. In Romans 6, 23, Paul reminds those of us who will hear God's word again that the wages of sin is death. What we deserve for our rebellion is physical death and spiritual separation from God forever. But the gift of God, uh, the gift of God uh, Paul continues in uh, Romans 6, 23, Uh, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul reminds those who he is writing to and to us today of the salvation that awaits everyone who calls uh, to the Lord in humility and in faith. He says, I'm going to look it up because I don't want to mess it up. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, hear this word of certainty, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. That means when you believe that Christ is, Jesus is the son of God, died for your sins and was raised from the dead, you are justified to God. You're made right with God. You're in right standing with him. And with the mouth, one confesses Jesus is Lord and is saved. In verse 13 of that same chapter, the Apostle Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No, there's no distance too great, no no sin too grievous that God cannot save the one who calls out to him in humility and faith. But also, Christian, this morning, I would encourage you, encourage us, to let our gratitude for salvation to spur our service to God, to drive our working in his name and for his glory. Notice Jonah's recognition of God's rescue inspires his commitment to serve the Lord. I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Jonah says, because of my gratitude to you, God, I will give my life in service to you. I will do what you have called me to do. In Jonah chapter three, we'll look at it next week. Jonah gets vomited up on the beach and the word of the Lord comes to him a second time saying, get up, go to Nineveh. And this time Jonah does. Jonah's gratitude for God's salvation leads him to obedient service. We don't run to temples to sacrifice animals like Jonah would have sought to do after being effectively raised from the dead. But we live lives of sacrificial worship to God out of gladness for salvation. We offer our whole lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Let your gratitude for salvation spur your loyalty to God, your service to God, your your obedient work for his people and for the gospel in the world. If you're glad for the rescue you received in Christ, tell someone about it. Many of you know we have a dog. His name is Barney. He's losing weight. Thank you for your prayers. And uh, uh, Barney is a dope, but he is a faithful dope. He is a faithful, loving, loyal dog. Uh, I don't have to but utter his name, and wherever he is within earshot, well, not always, but if we're in the house, he'll come running to see what's going on because I've called him. He lives to please us, in part because I think we rescued him. We didn't get Barney from a breeder. We didn't have him from the time that he was a puppy. He was already about a year and a half old uh, when Nikki and I went to the Animal Humane Association and decided that dog will be ours. We brought Barney home. We didn't have to do much but pet him, y'all. And he was ours forever. Not, Not just because he was ours, but because in his own heart and mind, we were his pack. We were his family. I was the alpha male, and he's the only one in the world that thinks I am that. But His whole life is devoted to us. He loves our kids. He loves everybody that comes into our home. If you've been in our home, you know that it takes a lot to pull Barney away from the front door because he just wants to know who's coming to see my people. Now, I'm not saying we're all dogs. Some of us are faithful dopes. We're not all dogs, but our joy in Christ, our love for pleasing him should far exceed the gratitude of my dog, for me, because we've not been rescued from humane association shelters. We've been rescued from sin and death itself. And not, and not by a, a capricious, malicious, unpredictable God who likes to mess with our lives just for his own entertainment. No, we've been saved from the grave, from sin and death by a God who loves, who enjoys, who delights in putting his steadfast love on us. Jonah's prayer for salvation teaches us so much about the person of God. I said last week that Jonah is really a bit player in this whole thing, and that continues to be true. We learn far more about who God is in Jonah chapter 2 than we do about Jonah. We see that God loves to pursue rebels who have turned from him. We see God's nearness to hear the prayer of the rebel when offered in humility and faith. We see the very readiness, the gladness, the joy in saving the desperate one who calls out to God in faith. All of this about God ought to teach us something about ourselves as well. We're all either rebels, running from the Lord's will, running from the Lord's mercy. We're all a little bit like that white witch who loved the kingdoms that we have made for ourselves in our own wickedness. Or we're all former rebels, now daughters and sons, reveling in the riches of God's glorious rescue because we've been waiting for Christmas. 
and for Aslan to come. And there's a call to all of us in Jonah chapter 2, all of us either to receive God's mercy in Jesus or to keep, uh, keep serving and loving gratitude for our redemption through Christ. How, dear one, this morning does the Spirit of God draw you to respond to his word today? Do you need to call on Jesus in faith for the first time because you're desperate for rescue and brought to the end of yourself, you're finally able to see that he is the way, the truth, the life. He's the resurrection and the life. He is God in flesh who gave his life for your sin to make you whole and to make you holy and to raise you with him on the last day. Or friend, are you the one who's already received that salvation and you, you, just, you need a reinvigoration of gratitude to God for it? Perhaps you're the one who has received salvation and you're grateful for it, but you need to start serving God because of it. You start giving your life in service to the Lord out of gratitude to him for what he's done. Maybe that service looks like just getting back into the rhythm and routine of, uh, of worshiping with the church body week by week. Maybe you've been out of it because of COVID and, and you recognize, man, the Lord kept me safe through all of that and I got a little too comfortable on my couch at home. I need to be with God's people again. Maybe you need to start serving. Uh, you're a member of our church. You need to start serving some aspect of ministry in our church. Y'all, we always have need in children's ministry, in preschool ministry, in student ministry, working with, discipling. Not, it's not just showing up and being a warm body in a room, but it's investing and loving on, in the name of Jesus, children and students to demonstrate with gladness in your heart the God who saved me can save you too. And if he has saved you, let's be grateful together. Maybe in service you need to rearrange your finances or do a little work on your home budget so that you actually have something to give out of what God has provided to you to the work of the gospel through the ministry of our church and through ministries like the uh, Baptist Convention of New Mexico or the International Mission Board, North American Mission Board. Maybe in gratitude for how God has saved you, friend, you realize that God is calling you to give your life on the mission field, to go to hard people in hard places who have never heard the gospel before, to tell them about the God who gives salvation. I don't know how the Spirit is drawing you to respond to his word today, but I trust that he is. I trust that he's working in every heart in this room right now to respond in faith and in obedience. I would simply invite you to respond faithfully and in obedience to Christ today. I'm going to pray for us as we close. Pastor Danny is going to read a benediction. And then in the time that we have between the end of worship and the start of our Bible study hour, I'll be here at the front. I would love to visit with you today to talk about how you need to respond in faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. Particularly, friend, particularly if you need to trust Christ for salvation today. Come find me after service, after worship. Let's talk together about how you can have confidence in the salvation that God gives. Will you pray with me?